What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and we're keeping an eye on this market, earlier breaking down, but now coming off of those lows. Here's what's all ahead uh, this hour. We have travel trauma with thousands of travelers still stranded as Southwest cancels nearly 16,000 flights over the past week. We'll get the latest details and tell you which stocks across the industry are most affected. Plus, ridiculously overvalued. The market sliding again today as these once high flyers fall back to earth. Apple at new 52-week lows. Tesla having its worst month, quarter, and year ever. But one investor says it's still not cheap. He'll tell us why and also which tech stocks he is buying here. And forget the great resignation. Great resignation, she said. 2022 was the year of the great regret. But what kind of job market are we heading into next year? Sharon Epperson brings us the verbal clues. Let's start with these markets, though. Bob Bassani, run us through the numbers, sir. Uh, Well, we're ping-ponging around. The market's having a hard time figuring out what side it wants to be on. Let's take a look at the major indices. Uh, Basically, everything's down about 0.6% right across the board. But there's a couple of broad stories going on here. Let's just do a check on what's moving the markets. First off, we've got seasonally light volume. Nobody's buying or or selling anything, particularly heavy quantities, uh, right now. The major story of the last two weeks is rising yields, and that is impacting particularly tech stocks, which are under pressure. The other major story is the China reopening story. And I'll put it simple. Is it good news or bad news? And the market's having a hard time deciding on that. So look at the China reopening. Yesterday, all the China reopening stuff, like the casinos uh, and metal stocks, which are the two proxies for reopening, were all up. Everyone was happy today, not so happy. A lot of concerns about potential large-scale illnesses over there. So it's sort of looking at it on the flip side of the coin. Again, which way is the right way to look at that? The other major story, yields rising for the last two weeks. And this has had a very noticeable impact on technology stocks. So we got a whole bunch of names at new lows, Apple, Amazon, and Tesla, even though it's off of that, but earlier on, was at a new low here. I just want to show you tech stocks since yields started rising. And that was in the middle of the month, about December 14th uh, or 15th. We saw tech stocks um, uh, really getting hit here as yields started rising. So there's ARK Innovation. There's Semiconductors. There's the S&P technology sector. Uh, these are all uh, obviously uh, major movers in tech. Uh, and the S&P is only down 5%. So as yields started going up, tech stocks have been moving down. And that is the major mover for the, the, the big end of the large scale end of the market. At the same time, guys, defensive stocks are holding up. We have new highs on a whole bunch of names. Campbell Soup's at a new high. Merck and Chubb and Conagra, Hartford Financial, even some of the uh, insurance names. These are all considered defensive names. And Kelly, those names have actually had a pretty good year overall. Back to you. No, I like that list and, and that reminder, Bob, as we talk about where the wealth has vanished. Stay with us. Our next guest has been warning that investors are ignoring major tail risks like inflation sticking around for a while. Let's bring in Bill Lee. He's chief economist at the Milken Institute. Bill, it's good to see you again. And is that what you think bond yields are telling us lately? Well, the bond news are telling us that we don't know where the Fed is going and the Fed is not very clear with their messages other than we're going to keep policy tight until inflation reaches 2%. And I think that message is a message that the market doesn't want to believe. So sort of walk that out for us. Um, What kind of reckoning then should we expect? 
Well, one of the things that we have to remember is that markets are so captive to consensus views. Remember where consensus was last year. We were worrying about whether it was three or five 25 basis points moves. Uh, we were worried whether inflation would uh, be able to sustain itself above 2% so that it, the Fed can average its target because this inflation was such a, a long history with us. So consensus has gotten things really wrong. And right now, the market is sort of looking at the new consensus trade, which is a slow recession uh, or, or moderate growth and, and very little unemployment. Uh, and in the second half of the year, we start to revive and the Fed will start to pivot. That is, again, probably going to be as wrong as the first consensus was last year. And one of the things that we haven't worried about was would inflation actually come down faster than people think? Because after all, the basis of the Fed's worry about inflation is the strong labor market. And, and everyone is talking about how strong job growth has been, how many job vacancies there are. But if you look at the household survey of, of employment, employment growth has stalled since the March of 2022. We have had no increase in the number of people employed. Yes, payrolls have been growing like crazy, and that diversion is something that economists always have worried about, but this year, it's bigger than ever. So how strong is the labor market? Because that's key to the kind of inflation, the wage price inflation that the Fed is trying to stomp on. And Got right it. now, as wages are four or 5%, that's where the Fed is worried that it might rise more. Guys, stay right there. If you don't mind, we just had a five-year note go up for auction. It doesn't sound like it went that great. Let's bring in Rick Santelli. He's tracking the action over in Chicago. Rick, what can you tell us? You know, I gave it a C, a straight C, very average. And as you look at an intraday of five-year notes on the chart, you can see we haven't really moved up or down much. So that would be a good validation of that grade. Uh, the main reason for an average grade, 3.973 was the Auction rate for 43 billion fives. The one issued market was trading around 3.96. All the other metrics were in line with 10 auction average. It just priced a bit on the sloppy side. Kelly, back to you. All right, so let's talk about this for a moment. Bob, even as that went over, not that great. We still have the Dow down 143. Down 300 was a little bit more scary. But the real tell today, Bob, seemed to be the way that Apple shares were trading. I mean, when it slides to a 52-week low yesterday, opens today, can't really get a bid, slides again to a new low, you can't be that surprised that the whole market just kind of turns lower. Although, as some were pointing out, maybe it was the rise in bond yields that was the real catalyst. Well, look, Apple comparatively has held up better than other big, big cap tech names, and so is Microsoft. So Apple's down 25% for the year. When you see other big names down 40 or 50%, you know, that's a comparative... Uh, holding up a lot better. So when people see Apple sliding a little bit more than the market or even more than tech stocks, they get a little worried saying, ah, see, they're coming for the last names that are comparatively still standing at that point. Uh, I'm not sure I'm that concerned about that. What really worries me, and I take a little bit of difference of opinion with Bill on this, is what I, what I see is the differences of opinion about next year. I've never seen such a wide divergence of opinion. I know people, Kelly, who have 3,600 for a 2023 price target on the S&P. I know people have 4,700. I know people have $60 oil. People have $120 oil. I think I know people who think earnings are going to be down 15%, and I know people who think that earnings are going to be up 10%. That is a really, really wide divergence of opinion. And to me, it signals how difficult it is to figure out what What's going to happen next year, given we've still got the Russia invasion, we've still got uh, what's going on uh, with, with COVID, we've still got uh, the Fed higher for longer, and that's making any prognostication really, really difficult. Yeah, exactly. And to that point, here's Bill's prognostication, which is basically he thinks inflation will fall faster than expected, but the Fed won't really react to that, Bill. I mean, and so, yeah, it's all a little bit um, confused as people try to figure out, you know, which of these is going to be the most important uh, factor. 
And the key is to decide how you manage your risks. And, and one of the things that I, I'm absolutely convinced about is that the Fed is going to treat in this inflation like a forest fire. They're going to make sure every ember is, is, is wiped out before they ease up on policy. They want to make sure that there are no resurgences in wage price spirals. And right now, Bob's absolutely right. There's a huge dispersion of views, but the skew of the market, where the, where the market seems to be leaning, is toward this consensus trade. And so I think that's the, the, the uncertainty there is giving us a lot of noise and volatility. But, but ask anybody out there if they have a view of the economy that is different than the consensus view. And most people sort of are, are, on, are on that page. And Rick, I'll give you the last word here. Yeah, I think the Federal Reserve is going to be way over their skis with respect to how they treat inflation, how they keep it higher for longer, because ultimately we've never opened and closed an economy before. And I think we're overzealous in our outlook for inflation outside of energy, which we've managed to screw up. And that one is going to be an inflationary area of the economy globally for a long time. All right, we'll leave it there, gentlemen. Thank you all, Rick Santelli, Bob Bassani, and Bill Lee. And next hour, former FDIC chair Sheila Bear will join us with why she says the Fed should stop hiking rates. It's coming up at 2 p.m. Eastern on Power Lunch. Let's turn now to the outrage story of this holiday season. Thousands of passengers remain stranded as Southwest cancels another 2,500-plus flights today. Southwest shares falling another 2%, down 8% over the past two sessions. They've canceled nearly 16,000 flights in total since December 22nd. The fallout is weighing across the travel sector, not just airlines. Hotel stocks high at Marriott and Hilton are also down 1% or more this week. For more on the impact on travelers and investors alike, let's welcome in Leslie Joseph, CNBC.com's airline reporter, and Patrick Scholes, analyst and managing director at Truist Securities. Welcome to both of you. Leslie, is this nightmare almost over? Doesn't look like it. So Southwest has canceled more than 60% of its flights tomorrow, another 58%, accounting for 99% of all the cancellations in the U.S. And what that means is that every other airline is getting back on their feet, but Southwest is still struggling. So that means tens of thousands of passengers, it's kind of the snowball effect, um, are impacted, stranded at airports around the country, very few options. Of course, this is still the holiday period, so seats are pretty hard to come by still. Is it true that this was basically a failure of their internal systems, which amounted to the kind of internal systems that make the rest of us go, hey, maybe ours aren't so bad. I mean, why are they so antiquated? What happened here? When things go well, Everything is fine. You know, uh, flight attendants, pilots, when uh, things go wrong, they could pretty much rebook themselves on other flights, get hotels, so that the operation continues to run smoothly. A, an issue of this magnitude, the system could not handle. You had pilots and flight attendants, crew members calling in, kind of like, you know, 1985 all of a sudden, with waiting on hold for hours at a time. I mean, Jeez. we all used to have to, you know, book tickets on <laughs> over the phone and things like that. But and that should, added to the problem. Should problems. they, and, and again, not that, to put this on you, but should they have gotten ahead of this, though? And should the CEO be more accountable for systems that were nowhere near ready for a holiday season that we knew? We talked to, to Transportation Secretary Buttigieg before this week because everybody looked at the weather and said, gee, looks like it's going to be a bad one. Hope they're ready. Not that Southwest can upgrade at the last second, but it sounds like they were way unprepared for a storm that we knew was coming and the potential for having to do all of this very kind of rebooking. They are very behind with IT investments, and this is going to be a big priority for them going forward. There's no margin for error. When something goes wrong, and we found this out in the summer, when there were thunderstorms, you know, it's one little thing that kicks it off, and then it just kind of cascades, and then you have hundreds of thousands of travelers with very little recourse. You know, we have very weak rules in this country for when things go wrong, what what customers are entitled to. Right. And we see, and I don't know if they can do this, but some people in the administration, Senator Blumenthal, were saying 
they, you know, people need to be able to rebook on a different airline. Do we have do we have the systems that could be in place for something like that? Southwest is very unique in that way. They don't have what's called code shares or interlining where you can book when there's an emergency on another competitor. Um, so they are pretty much stuck. Those customers are pretty much stuck. There's also a huge problem of lost luggage. Southwest is one of those airlines that's, you know, two free free check bags on right. like the other airlines encouraging people, you know, just check it and be, be done with it. That stuff is piling up at airports around right. the country. We've so. seen the photos. Great point. Patrick, you actually had an interesting take on this, which is that, listen, stranded uh, stranded travelers have to stay somewhere, don't they, in those hotel stocks that you cover? Yeah, absolutely right. And as Leslie mentioned, um, you know, you're stuck at the airport. Uh, you know, you may be staying at a hotel for a couple of days and, uh, you know, Southwest may be paying for it. Or, you know, if you're at a resort, uh, I'm actually out here in Vail, Colorado, and you know, the skiing is fantastic. People might want to add a, a few more days onto their trip. Uh, so historically, we've seen uh, these types of issues uh, be a uh, net benefit for the hotels, surprisingly. Yeah. So they're down a little bit now, but maybe they actually, like you said, get a boost on Southwest. I'm Let's turn and talk about COVID now, because the return of these Chinese travelers was supposed to be a big boost to the global industry. But what if it just ends up spreading COVID more quickly again? Patrick, do you want to comment on this? Yeah, I mean, obviously, that, that's a concern. Um, you know, one thing that, that's interesting with the travel industry, and especially the hotel stocks, is the one major market not to be fully back is China. And, you know, China is still about down 50%. Um, in the the term we use it in RevPAR. So, you know, I, I think I look a little bit more optimistically on China that uh, things are, you know, starting to open up there. There could be some real upside for uh, companies such as Hyatt Hotels, which historically has uh, gotten about 10% of their EBITDA uh, directly from China. So I, I look at it more, you know, as an open, things reopening and sure. possibly a net positive. And Leslie, we're obviously looking at the airlines too here. And with these reports about the, the number of travelers uh, from China that might have COVID or kind of hand this uh, headache to the airlines all over again, what, what kind of response, if any, should we expect? Is it simply going to be one where maybe some travelers cancel their plans because they go, you know, we don't really want to take that risk? Do the airlines themselves have to step up and say, no, 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 we've got, you know, these systems in place to clean our air or filter our systems or, you know, rebook you if needed and, and so forth. They probably thought this was way behind them. Now it looks like they might need to make sure that they're on top of it all over again. Yeah, and I mean, COVID, we're in holiday season and RSV and, and cold season and, and things seem to be spreading. But the airlines, at least in the U.S., uh, Europe, have kind of put it behind them uh, for the most part. And they have spoken about their air filtration systems, at least on many types of, of aircraft. Um, but things are pretty much business as usual. And, and I cannot see them uh, going back on that and, and, you know, requiring masks again. Do you? How are we looking on global capacity? Because that was one point that Seema had mentioned as well, which is, we all want to see this glut uh, sort of return and support global GDP and travel and all the rest of it. But you do need to make sure that airlines have enough capacity to actually move these travelers around the world. Do we see that happening yet? 2023 is looking kind of iffy on capacity. I mean, I think Delta said that they're not going to get back to their uh, 2019 capacity until the summer. You know, there's a shortage of pilots. There's a shortage of aircraft. Air Boeing and Airbus are kind of slow delivering uh, airplanes. They have the same staffing shortages and training backlogs that the airlines have had to deal with and many other companies. So that's something that's actually going to keep fares up uh, for travelers next year and that we're, we're pretty limited on the number of seats that are flying out there. And maybe that if from an investor point of view, they might like the sound of that. Patrick, I'll give you the last word of people in our audience trying to figure out what to do with hotel stocks. What do you tell them? Um, my, you know, pick your names carefully. What's very interesting right now is 
you know, we do see some pressure on uh, business travel, especially in the tech stocks. And many of the hotel REITs um, do have outside exposure to San Francisco. But, you know, a name that is my favorite name uh, now and going into next year is going to be Hyatt Hotels. Uh, great exposure to uh, the recovering Caribbean, um, selling assets at very high valuation multiples, buying shares, great attractive uh, stock valuation um, on, on top of that. So, uh, you know, pick your names carefully, know your know what the customers are and, uh, you know, all the uh, right things come together for me on uh, Hyatt. In sure. That name. And the stock's only down about 6% this year. So that looks positively only. fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Compared with everybody yeah. else. It's, it's all relative for, yeah. uh, for, the, for the investment <laughs> funds, isn't it? No, that believe me. Absolutely. <laughs> Patrick, thanks so much for your time today. Patrick Scholes, we appreciate it. And our Leslie Josephs. Great reporting, Leslie, as always. Sure. Thank you. Coming up and speaking of travel, as we just mentioned, Beijing dropping those COVID restrictions despite a surge in cases. How will it affect the economy's reopening? We'll talk about the GDP impact next. Plus, we know the Fed's keeping a close eye on jobs and unemployment, but with all the new workplace trends this year, what are we talking about for the labor market for 2023? We'll take a closer look. As we head to break, here's a last look at markets. The Dow is down about 300 at the lows so far. It's paired those losses to down 140. The 10-year yield still sitting up there, about 386, almost 387 after that five-year auction. We're back after this. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. China giveth and the world taketh away as Beijing's reopening plan comes as COVID cases rise. Now the U.S. and other countries are considering new rules for travelers from China. My next guest says the reopening issues indicate decision-making in China is top-down and reactive, and that will complicate investments there. Joining me is Patrick Chovanek, economic advisor at Silvercrest Asset Management and a longtime China watcher. I almost thought it said a longtime CNBC watcher. <laughs> CNBC Sima Modi is here as well. <laughs> it's great to have you guys both. All right. So, Patrick, let's start with is China's reopening a help or a hindrance to the global economy right now? What are you seeing? So right now, what we're seeing in markets is a bit of volatility as people try to assess what this kind of what, what this um, I'm sorry, I'm hearing an echo. Um, what this uh, uh, new wave of COVID and the impact that it's going to have uh, and how disruptive it's going to be to China's economy. Right. The the um, I'm I'm really hearing a very bad echo. I'm sorry. No problem. We'll get, we'll get you sorted out. Seema and I can chat with each other here for a moment because Seema, the reason I asked the question is. We started with a very positive narrative. Hey, China's reopening. This is going to boost commodity prices. This is going to boost global GDP. This is going to bail out the travel sector. Like all of these things. Then today we go, wait a minute. 
do, are we going to see COVID cases now rise globally and kind of backtrack a lot of that progress? And countries are already responding. Japan's uh, Prime Minister Kishida is saying that there are great uh, concerns around the transparency of data coming out of China. So they are now requiring Chinese travelers to present a negative COVID test upon arrival. Malaysia, Taiwan, considering options. The U.S., uh, according to NBC News, is weighing options as well. Should there be COVID restrictions on on Chinese travelers. Now, what's interesting is yesterday we were talking about that significant development as part of this China reopening, which is that quarantine requirement being removed. And there was questions as to whether the Chinese traveler was ready. Well, let me tell you, they are ready. We just got <laughs> new data from Trip.com. That's basically the Expedia of China reporting that there is a they saw a 254 percent jump in outbound flight bookings from China wow. yesterday compared to the day prior. So the yesterday. appetite to travel is there. Now the question is, how will countries respond, given that this is all happening as COVID cases continue to rise across the country? Exactly. What's the worst case scenario for the travel industry, do you think? Worst case scenario is we start to see uh, different countries respond with different rules around COVID and restrictions that don't really line up. Whenever there's confusion, that will weigh on travel, travel sentiment. And I think that could certainly be an issue. I mean, as in COVID cases rising in other parts of the country because of China, uh, I mean, now we have vaccination rates. That's a very different story uh, this year compared to what we saw back in 2020. We can hope. And again, looking at shares of things like Norwegian, uh, the cruise lines, I mean, they're, they're under pressure today. It's a tough tape to really tell which factor exactly is weighing on them. But uh, Patrick, ho hopefully you can hear me okay now. I guess the larger question for people again is whether this event is a net positive for global GDP or whether it will raise risks all over again about the spread of COVID. So there's a lot of optimism right now among the business community, uh, among investors about what reopening could mean for China. Um, you know, for a long time now, for two plus years, China has been essentially closed. Um, to travel. It, it's, it hasn't been impossible to go there, but it's been very, very difficult. Um, and there, people are feeling very positive about what the impact is. However, we take a step back and we look at the bigger picture. You know, the protests have gone away, but there is this underlying unease within China um, about the direction that China's leadership, namely Xi Jinping, is taking the country. Hmm. And that has some serious grounds to it and is not going to go away. Are you talking about the unrest that we've seen in a lot of the factories, for instance, and those kinds, sort of when they hold up the white pieces of paper, things like that? What does that all tell you? Yes, and it speaks of a broader concern. You know, I, you mentioned uh, something that I said uh, before I came on, which is that China's decision making is top down and reactive. Um, and that has a broader concern, whether it goes, whether it's applied to Taiwan, whether it's applied to international role of the renminbi trade tensions or technology tensions with the united states you know there's a lot of people a lot of investors sort of reassured themselves that with this phrase that china has a hundred year plan and the implication being that chinese policymakers always know exactly what they're doing right you know, china doesn't even have a hundred day plan to deal with COVID, hmm. and i think that's emblematic of the fact that that chinese policymakers can make mistakes just like anywhere else in the world i think investors need to digest that and the implications on a broader scale than just what's happening right now with COVID. And final, the, then what do you think the implications might be? Because to me, if you say there really is no plan, that suggests they could change their minds, right? What if we all go ahead with this this big idea that it, you know it's a, it's a different world now, and then they go, you know what, never mind, no, not so fast. Well, they did do a 180-degree turn from you know COVID zero to complete reopening, which was kind of odd. 
Uh, I don't. I think they're committed to this path right now, um, and I don't think, quite frankly, there is any going back to COVID zero. Um, but uh, but that said, you know, the broader issue really is the direction that Xi Jinping has been taking China, which is not in the direction of economic reform. It's been in the direction of greater tensions, and I think we'll continue to see tensions with the United States and the West, and a more top-down decision-making, uh, state-directed Chinese economy. And that creates very serious problems for investors. True. Seema, last word as we show shares of K-Web. That's obviously been a good barometer. It's down 4% today. It had been on kind of a comeback streak. What are you going to be watching? I think the big takeaway is that this reopening is not going to be smooth. It's going to be, take some time, one step forward, two steps back. And uh, the idea that China can carve out this reopening plan on stone and hope that, that it will go the way it wants, that's just not how things work these days, given how volatile this environment is. And we have COVID cases rising once again, and we're still not sure what type of variant is that it is uh, on the ground there. Exactly. Seema, thank you. Seema Modi. Patrick, appreciate it as well. Thank you for bearing with us. Patrick Chovanek as well today. Coming up, this retail behemoth is trading at its lowest level since the pandemic. Think you know what it is? Tweet me your guess at Kelly CNBC. We'll reveal it later in the show. Plus, Tesla down 70% since January, and our next guest says it's still ridiculously overvalued. 21 times forward earnings. How much further does it have to fall before he becomes a buyer? We'll ask him as we head to break. Here's a look at the Dow heat map. Apple, one of the worst performers today. Only three names are in the green, even though we're down just 167. They include Boeing and J.P. Morgan. The exchange is back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here's what's happening at this hour. The death toll from the massive winter storm has risen to 34 in Erie County, New York, which includes Buffalo. The city's mayor says Buffalo was hit uh, ground zero for the storm, which could be the worst in its history. He says nearly all main roads have been cleared, but smaller streets still need work. The House Sergeant at Arms says the law enforcement response to the January 6th attack would have been very different if the rioters had been black. William Walker, who is African-American, made the comment in testimony to congressional investigators that has just been released. Walker indicated that he believed more attackers would have died if the crowd was not overwhelmingly white. And no ground, no grand prize winner last night means a big mega millions jackpot on Friday. The last drawing of the year will have a top prize estimated at $640 million. That is the fifth biggest jackpot in mega million history. Get your ticket, yeah. Kelly. Here we go again. Yeah. Sima, thank you very much. Coming up, Apple shares sitting at $127 and change, and it's the worst performer again on the Dow today. It's down 12% this past month alone. But one portfolio manager says it's starting to look interesting. Well, it's definitely interesting, but he'll tell us why he might be buying next. 
Welcome back. 2022 has been a rough one for everybody, uh, especially for Tesla and Apple, which are down 68% and 27% respectively. But if you're thinking of buying these names, my next guest says only one of them has his interest. Joining me now is Vahan Janjigian, Chief Investment Officer at Greenwich Wealth Management. It's great to see you, Vahan. I, I'm guessing this is Apple. Uh, you're not going near Tesla, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you'll surprise me. No, you're not wrong. Uh, you're absolutely correct. Um, yes, I, I would consider buying Apple now, but let me stress that um, you know these technology stocks are only a very small part of my uh, portfolios, and they're something that I've been adding recently. I haven't added uh, Apple, and I don't own uh, Tesla, but Apple is a stock I'm seriously starting to uh, consider. Tesla, on the other hand, I think is still tremendously overvalued despite the uh, plunge this year. Um, I'm just looking at it in very simple terms. I mean, Tesla is worth approximately uh, eight times as much as Ford and uh, General Motors. Um, you know, I think Tesla should be uh, selling at a uh, higher multiple than those companies because it has much better growth prospects and right. it will probably dominate the EV market. But uh, even now, even with this plunge, uh, this multiple is way too high. Wait, uh, but, I think but behind, behind. this is the one place yeah. that I... I Listen, 21 times forward earnings. It's not like Tesla is just giving us, you know, a, a prototype of, a, of, hey, a cool EV they might do next year, like some of the EV people who entered the space. They are making hundreds of thousands of cars at this point. We're seeing trade up. We're seeing households that have never owned an EV own a Tesla and have a pretty good experience. with. Maybe we pulled forward pandemic demand, but it's a real company with like that's here to stay. And, and to get it, the, it 21 times doesn't interest you. Um, yes, it's here to stay, but Tesla is currently selling about a million cars per year. That number is going to grow. When I look at something like Ford, which is selling, uh, you know, approximately, you know, close to what, five million, six million cars per year. Um, you know, I think Tesla will get up there. So therefore, under that argument, I think it should be worth, you know, at least as much as Ford, maybe twice as much as Ford, maybe three times as much as Ford. But eight times as much as Ford, I think it's uh, that's too high. It's eight times as much as uh, General Motors too. Well, so geez. if it came down, if it came down to about you know a three or four times uh, Ford multiple, then uh, three or four, uh, he wouldn't buy it till yes. he was trading three times Ford oh, earnings. Oh, I wouldn't. My gosh. <laughs> Come on, their growth rate still has to be like double digits every year. I mean, so maybe they have a bad year or so at post pandemic. But you really think it would have to get that cheap? Well, are they going to be the only car, car seller in the world? Are they going to put all these other uh, automobile manufacturers out of business? If that's the case, then I would agree with you. But, you know, Ford is also making uh, EVs. GM is making EVs. Every single manufacturer now is, uh, is trying to grow their EV business. And they have a lot of years of experience behind them from, uh, from the uh, internal combustion engine automobiles. So I think that they will eventually catch up. I think Tesla will dominate that market. Um, and therefore, it should sell at a premium, but not as much as it's uh, currently selling. I love it. Okay, so with that in mind, let's talk about Apple. I'm not sure where its forward PE stands at the moment, but w at what point do you think this, and I'll just lay it out for viewers, if, if the big question is whether these stocks are all going back to pre-pandemic levels, Tesla was, in, was around 60, Apple was around 80, and Apple's currently around 127. Yeah, but you know, I, Apple, I think, uh, dominates the competition. I think, I think Tesla is going to have a tougher time with competition, uh, you know, in the future. Um, Apple, I still see dominating, um, you know, their market. Uh, I don't see other uh, manufacturers uh, able to really compete with them. And I, I would say that, uh, 
know, Apple is a stock that uh, I would certainly consider. Um, it's going to continue to grow. It's going to continue to dominate. You know what Apple's forward PE is right now? It's 21 times. <laughs> Yeah, which is which I think is uh, reasonable for uh, you know a big tech company like that. What other big tech companies, if any, would you be a buyer of here, Vahan? And, and if you could contextualize this, like you said, these are not the core of your portfolio. You and I talk a no. lot about big stalwart value stocks, and for investors who are part of the twelve trillion in wealth loss over the past year, tell them where you think they can go to actually preserve capital for twenty twenty three. Well, in the tech area, I mean, com companies that I'm currently uh, considering um, adding to, I've, I've re very recently opened up positions in these companies, and I uh, will add more if they go lower. Uh, that would include uh, Amazon, that would include Google, and it would include NVIDIA. Um, you know, I think you can make a case that uh, these companies also have very high multiples and, um, you know, maybe very expensive. But uh, And I do expect them to go lower. That's why I've only opened up very small positions, but I would certainly be interested in adding to those, because I think over the long run, uh, these kinds of stocks will, will do well. But as you know, Kelly, I'm more of a uh, value investor, and that dominates my portfolio. Um, and, uh, you know, I really like stocks like uh, Verizon and IBM, for example. And you also... Um, they, pay, yeah, they pay great dividends, and I like those dividends. And I thought it was interesting you say you, you also like treasuries. <laughs> I mean, if you can I, get I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think treasuries are now giving uh, dividend-paying stocks some competition. Um, I have recently put some money in treasuries, but I'm staying very short-term. If I'm investing for the longer term, I'm using these dividend-paying stocks. But I am very interested in treasuries anywhere from about uh, six months out to a year out. Um, you know, Verizon, of course, this year has done terribly, but, you know, I'll stress they pay a great dividend and they've increased that dividend every single year for, I think, about 16 years now. IBM has increased it for 28 years, and I expect that to continue. All right, Vahan, great to check in with you. Thank you so much. We appreciate it today. Thank you. Vahan Janjigian with Greenwich Wealth Management. With the NASDAQ on pace for its worst year since the financial crisis, CNBC's special Taking Stock 2023 will take an even deeper dive into tech tonight. 6 p.m. Eastern, right here. You won't want to miss it. Coming up, while tech makes up a lot of this year's vanishing valuations, this asset has also seen steep losses. We'll track the trillions of wealth lost next on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're off the lows. Dow's down 185. That's with Apple again being the worst performer and dipping. We'll have more on that in a moment. About a half a percent drop for the Dow and S&P. Now two -thirds of a uh, three quarters of a percent drop again for the Nasdaq, 10,271. Let's get a check on those mega cap names we were just discussing. Apple is now below $2 trillion. Oh, it's just barely above it. It's hovering right around the $2 trillion mark for market cap. Went below that earlier for the first time since March of 2021. 125.72 is the number to watch if we do go below that level. Microsoft and Alphabet also in the red. Amazon was the mystery retail chart, chart which two of you nailed, hitting its lowest level since the start of the pandemic. And we just talked about Tesla, which is bucking the trend today. It's in the green by 3.5%. But take a look at these declines since January. More than $800 billion in market cap erased for Amazon and Apple. More than $700 billion each for Alphabet, Microsoft, and Tesla. Meta's valuation down by more than $600 billion. These six names have lost a combined total of $5 trillion in market cap. To put that in perspective, the S&P as a whole has lost $8 trillion this year. Throw in crypto, that was the mystery chart we just showed you. A year ago, the so-called asset class worth more than $3 trillion. Today, just over $800 billion. So you add up the entire stock universe, 
crypto. We're talking about a $12 trillion loss of wealth over the past 12 months or so. More of this on my, in my newsletter today. You can subscribe at CNBC.com or through the link in my Twitter bio. Let's get to a break. Still ahead, during the so-called Great Resignation, employees had the power as companies tried to stay afloat. But now the dynamic is shifting. According to one recruiting firm, what the 2023 workplace could look like, that's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. From quiet quitting to loud layoffs, 2022 brought us a bunch of buzzy career words. Sherrod Epperson has a look at the lasting marks these trends will leave on employers and employees. Chandra Sahu left a job in investment banking during the great resignation last year. Hello. Eager to find work that offered more flexibility and wasn't just about productivity and output. The top priorities really were agency and creativity, I think. Unlike workers who went through the great regret after resigning, admitting they should have stayed put, Sahu was ready for a change. I've really tried to prioritize making space for habits in my life that ultimately lead to the kind of life I want to live. She joined a startup that was acquired by the social media company Pinterest and landed a product manager position in less than six months, while still fitting in time for yoga, reading, and other interests every week. It's been amazing to take a step back and figure out how to orient my life around the choices I want to make, while still having the kind of rigor in my job that I think I really love. It's a new trend some HR experts call a career correction. Instead of quiet quitting or doing the bare minimum on the job, workers are intentionally switching from a culture that's quick to praise working long hours to one that puts more value on employees' lives outside of work. Individuals certainly are trying to exercise their right to find employment anywhere that meets their needs, their family needs, whether their work needs, their location needs, all of that. This year's HR buzzwords may fade from shift shock when the new job is very different from what you were led to believe, to boomerang employees who return to jobs they left, to career cushioning by adding new skills and reigniting your network after loud layoffs at high profile firms. But for employers, this is still clear. The trend will continue to be an emphasis on talent and the right skills and getting those ta- getting that talent into the right positions within organizations. Recognizing employees' need for flexibility outside of work may be essential to filling roles. Sahu says senior managers should show they understand by their own actions. Making space for your kids or your hobbies or your life that is protected, tells other folks that that is a regular habit that a successful leader can have. Having control over how you do your work and feeling that your work is meaningful are among the most important factors that employees say lead them to thrive at work. Being paid more is actually less important. These sentiments may lead to new career trends in 2023 and some new buzzwords too. Back to you. Thank you, Sharon. So with all those changes in the workplace, who's in charge as we head into 2023? My next guest says the power is shifting away from workers and back to employers. Joining me is Tom Gimbel, the founder and CEO of LaSalle Network, a national staffing and recruiting firm. Welcome, Tom. What makes you say that? Well, what you see is as layoffs become more common as we're seeing, whether it's big tech or it expands beyond that, or as money isn't free, so the venture firms aren't getting the opportunities that they used to have with money coming in for free and unemployment rate goes up a little bit, that all of a sudden 
employers are in more in more control than the employees, which we've been dealing with the inverse of that for the past three years. So for all of those out there thinking, well, I mean, even in the Wall Street Journal, there's this article yesterday about how all the tech workers who've been laid off have had a surprisingly easy time finding work. Why? Yep. Why is that not going to persist? Well, it will persist for the top five to 10 percent of the working population. And what I mean by that is the, the top tier talent, whether you're an athlete, a surgeon, an accountant, a news anchor, a recruiter, it doesn't matter. The top of the top always have more control over their workplace flexibility and what they want to do. That's always been the case. And it always has been. That's why these buzzwords are, are a little bit passe. Because in this day of social media, we need a, a clickbait. But at the end of the day, we've always had people resigning because they don't like their boss or the hours. And they always had people having regret. And Boomerang employees have been around for 40 years. What we have to realize is that the people who want to make the most money are usually the ones who are going to work the hardest and put in the most time. And what ends up being the checkpoint is, are they as good as the people who want more balance? But as long as the people who work harder and want more are just as good, if not better, than these other folks, they're going to rise up and they're going to be leading the charge. It's always been that way and it always will be. I want you to tell me the future. <laughs> what are the buzzwords going to be for 2023? You know, do you think the whole quiet quitting thing, you know, all the great, I mean, all of that you think is firmly behind us, all of the pandemic shifts. What about work from home? Yeah, I think what we're really turning to is, a permanent hybrid. So we're going to have three days a week that I would say 75% of the companies are going to be in the office and it's going to move towards a mandate, meaning you don't get to pick what days you're in. That The majority of employees and companies are going to have people in the office Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And then I think over time, you're going to have some that go Monday through Thursday and Friday is going to become remote Friday. will be what casual Friday was 30 years ago. It'll be creeping in and more and more and more companies will do it. And it'll be hard to get rid of that. Um, and I'm not sure that's necessarily a bad thing. I, I, and I'm, again, Kelly, before all the hate message and tweets come my way, I'm not saying anything's good or bad. Uh, I have my own opinions. I'm just telling you where where things are going to be when we a year from now. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess sort of most obviously, if we're going into recession, we all know what that job market's like. Um, it, it's really I'm, only. I'm not so sure we're going into a recession. Yeah, I, I'm not buying. I'm not buying that. Hmm. I think what we're going to have is. We've got big tech companies, the Amazons and the, the Facebook metas, that they thought they knew exactly where the world was going to be. It was remote work forever for Amazon. Meta was launching the, 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 the metaverse, and that was where everybody wanted to be. And that just didn't happen as the pandemic went away, and they overhired. And we saw that interest rates went up, and that just made that meant that free money wasn't right. I'm 50 years old. In the late 90s and the early 2000s, money wasn't free. And we had a great economy. And so we see that this is going to continue. And don't forget, we've still got the infrastructure package. If we had the workers to do anything on the blue collar side to build highways and all the ancillary business that comes off of that. I really think that the economy is going to be strong in 2023 and we'll have slight verticals that have recessionary tendencies. But I don't think we're going to be in uh, uh, 2009 say, uh, experience. Yeah, I, I hope you're right. Um, what then do you think is the lasting impact of inflation on the labor market? Well, I think I think what, what's happening right now is that we haven't had real inflation since the mid-70s. And heck, I get, like I said, I'm 50. I was born in 72. So I was a toddler at that point, And I don't remember it. And so we've got most of the, the working workforce, the working world hasn't really experienced inflation. And now what they're really realizing is, Getting a big raise and having things cost more 
really wash each other out. And having money flushed into the system, there are consequences to that. So as a society, we've gotten an economics 101 lesson. And what the, the average worker has to realize is if you get everything you ask for, it doesn't always turn out a happy ending. So you get to work from home and you're making more money, but inflation's gone up, as has depression, as has you're not getting promotions, as has a lot of other things that have gone wrong in society. So I think that we're going to look at this for the, the worker and see that coming back to the office three or maybe four days a week isn't a bad thing. And it's what most workers would have killed for three years ago. Absolutely. Well said. Tom, thanks for joining us today. Good to see you. Always good to be with you. Happy New Year, Kelly. You too, Tom Gimbel. Still ahead, despite FTX making big headlines, it was actually a pretty quiet year for corporate bankruptcies. But next year could be a little different. Why 2023 could see double the defaults next. Welcome back, everybody. Want to get to one more thing, and it's a warning for 2023, especially if you're looking at some of those high-yielding parts of the corporate debt world right now. Corporate bankruptcies have been sitting at the lowest level in more than a decade, but it could be a very different story next year. Christina Partsinevelis has the story. Christina? Well, U.S. bankruptcy actually fell in November, and despite Chapter 11 filings from Revlon to BlockFi, like Kelly said, 2022 is still on pace to have the lowest number of filings in over 10 years. But don't be fooled by these numbers. This doesn't mean that all U.S. firms are on good footing. Bankruptcy filings tend to trail off into year end because of seasonality. But U.S. firms have been buoyed these past few years by unprecedented low interest rates and government aid. Those support systems are now gone. Companies that kind of didn't shore up their balance sheet ahead of time might not be struggling with higher debt, harder to get debt. Um, and I think we're definitely going to see some kind of change sometime in the future. Moody's Analytics predicts the global default rates, you know, that's the percentage of loans written off as not paid, will double to almost 5% next year, which you're seeing on the right-hand side of your screen. Another warning side for 2023, credit downgrades outpaced upgrades last month, signaling more companies are not currently solvent enough to repay their debts. It's tough to get into distressed debt, Kelly, and if you're not a hedge fund, it's uh, even more difficult. But investors can get into high-yield corporate bonds like ETFs. Uh, what you're seeing on your screen right now are examples, JNK, HYG, uh, just a few. And you can look that the yields that they offer are higher because of a higher risk of defaults. And you can see just over the last three months or so, all of these are up. Well, they were up 1%. J&K up a half percent right now uh, with HYG up over 1%. No, it's such an important warning for those thinking about these high yields. Christina, thank you. Christina Parts and Evelis. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.